We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Silencer Central studios at Silencer Central. Their experts make the buying process simple. They help you select the right suppressor for your weapon, handle the paperwork, and deliver it right to your front door when you're approved. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if buying and owning a silencer is legal in your state. It's time for our regular check-in with the Havoc Journal. Havoc Journal is my go-to place for all things military and first responder. You can learn more. Visit HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K. We're talking with Charles Fate, who's the owner of Havoc Journal and the executive director of the Second Mission Foundation. Charles had 27 years in the Army, seven combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan with various special operations units. Uh, Charles, welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Ben, I'm thrilled to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. I tell you what. Charles, I believe that things happen for a reason, and your article, Veteran Community Giving Your Flowers to the Living, was the perfect thing for me at the perfect time. I've had a funeral or a memorial service every weekend this month. Wow. And even in in, in the services, talking to some of the survivors, if you will, many of the phrases that came up in your article uh, were, were equ- this very same phrase, the same thing we were talking about, about, you know, funerals really are for the living. They're not for the dead anymore. So a very, very powerful article, um, and I just, I love it, and thank you so much for publishing that. It was a pleasure to write it. It actually took me a while to get it done because, I, as I put in the article, Ben, my friend Alisa, who's been with Havoc even since before I owned it, she mentioned that phrase in a conversation that we had several months ago. She mentioned flowers living with something I'd never heard of before. So I did what I always do when I hear something interesting. I went to the Google and looked it up. We found out there's uh, there's a whole body of work on it. There's a, a hymn, a Christian hymn about it. And it really made me think about how we always say nice things about people when they're not there anymore. Why don't we go ahead, especially the veteran community, first responders, or just in our life in general, and give those flowers those figurative and literal flowers living while they still have time to appreciate and know that we care. I tell you, Charles, you had 27 years in the Army, but you enlisted when you were three, so you're probably <laughs> a lot younger than me, but all of us do get to a point, and you don't think about this when you're younger. I mean, we're all immortal, right? Right. But all of us get to a point where it just sort of dawns on us, and I'm I'm past that point where, okay, clearly, basic math, there are more years behind me than there are to come. Yeah. And yeah. you start to think about your own mortality, and then when you have a month like I've had, and all of them were heart attacks or cancer. And I want to actually pull a quote right out of your article because I, I found it so powerful. It said, it has been said that time is the coin of the realm. You can't earn any more of it, and you never know just how much of it you have left. So spend the coin wisely with love and joy. Spend it not on flowers for the dead. They can no longer enjoy them, but rather spend it on the ones you love that are living. Take the bouquet of your time and give the flowers one by one to those who are here with you in this life for them to enjoy with you. Is that your line or her line? That's her line. It, you know, I started laughing when you read it because, of course, you, you pulled something I didn't write. <laughs> so for your listeners who haven't read the article yet, Ben, as you know, that I co-wrote this with a friend of mine who I thought about a lot when I was writing this article, and I asked her if she would co-author with me, which she very kindly did, and she wrote that part that you're talking about. 
but she's much more modest than me and didn't want her name mentioned in the article. So her part is anonymous, but she's absolutely right. Time is the coin of the realm and we have a finite amount of it and you can't get any more no matter how hard you try. So got to make the best of it while we got it. Charles, one thing that struck me in preparing for today's show and just what I've experienced the last month or so, except for two people died suddenly or in their sleep. But in the, yeah. the other cases, like where, you know, if they're suffering from cancer, we had some time to prepare. You have time to check in. But in your former line of work and certainly in first responders line of work, you know, someone might leave their family that morning and they just don't come home and it's instant. You're absolutely right, Ben. So many times it's happened over my old career and with the, this woman who co-offered with me, I'm just going to call her Kathy because that's not her name. But with Kathy, she was, wasn't it super healthy. She's really into making sure she and her family get all the exercise and nutrition they need. And then she got really sick. In fact, she and her husband weren't able to come to my retirement because she was so sick. And her husband, who also writes anonymously for the Havoc Journal, called me and was like, hey, brother, I can't come to your retirement because Kathy has a kidney stone. And to me, a kidney stone, yeah, it's painful. My driver had one at ATC one time. It was the worst pain he said that he's ever felt, but he he passed it pretty quickly. But what happened was is they got infected and she got septic and she almost died. And that was why I was thinking about her when I was writing this article, why I asked her to co-author with me because of her own near-death experience that she's overcome. And she's still dealing with the aftermath of it. But, yeah, she's my age. And she almost died even though she's lived a very healthy life. As far as I know, her entire existence has been very healthy. So you're right. It could happen at any time to anybody, and we just don't know. No, neither the day nor the hour. Well, I'd recommend everybody go to visit HavocJournal.com and look up Veteran Community, Give Your Flowers to the Living, because I I know you've got that, that qualifier there, Charles, Veteran Community, but this is something that every single one of us who's walking the planet now needs to know and recognize. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, don't, don't miss an opportunity, because literally TikTok, you never know when someone you care about is not going to be with us anymore. I want to make a rather awkward transition here, but certainly in the news, the situation with Hamas, very powerful article by Scott Faith was published October 24th called Hamas, the Invisible Gorilla, and what the media political complex is doing to America. Charles, we had Paul Scharr on oh, no, a couple of months ago. I don't know if you ever read his stuff, but he, his most recent book is called Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, and he talks about combat and what needs to be done to compete in the digital age and how things have changed so much, how the old way of thinking for, you know, the Army was we need soldiers, for the Navy we need ships, for the Air Force we need planes, but he proposes that people aren't doing enough to think about, okay, what do we need as far as software engineers and, and ethical hackers and all, how do we compete in this, this global digital combat battle space? And I thought about that when I read this article because it's gotten to a point now where information travels at the speed of of a click, and it can be weaponized, and that's what we're seeing right now in, in the current conflict, I believe, in uh, with between Israel and Hamas. I could not agree more, and I know you like to steer clear of politics, and I, I, I'm going to respect that on here, but what Scott is saying in this, and he uses the metaphor of the invisible gorilla, which we can unpack in a minute if, if you want to, Ben, to talk about the information war that's happening between Hamas and Israel. And not only that war, but in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, several examples of just blatant propaganda going on there, and then in domestic politics as well. 
So I think one thing that would help all of us is, is if we all become more responsible consumers of information and willing to do our own research and let it sit a bit before we react to the first thing that we're told. I tell you, it's gotten, I mean, I'm old enough, Charles, where I remember that, you know, reporters, it, it was their job to check their sources. If they didn't, their editor would fire them. And now if I see something, I have to go to four or five publications and check different sources on the same topic to, and try to discern myself somewhere in the middle where the actual truth may lay. And uh, you're you're spot on. I, I think it's important. Not you know, Hamas, you know, with the, the hospital bombing, quote unquote, um, is the most egregious example now. But yeah, if you go back here domestically, when you, you see all the the riots and and the violence that occurred based on falsehoods. Right. There's a very famous quote in a show called The Wire. You ever watched The Wire, Ben? Love The Wire. Yeah. You might recall then that there's a quote that we fight on that lie. Which I'm, when I'm probably going to write an article about this for Havoc, we fight on that lie. And it was in connection with a gang war that was about to break out. And the provocation for the gang war, the gang that was going to go to war knew that it wasn't true. It's like, this is a lie. Well, if it's a lie, then we fight on that lie. And we see that time and time again. Actual violence broke out over this example that you gave with New York Times, just really egregious propaganda based on what Hamas told them was just Israel killed 500 people in a strike on a hospital, which just wasn't plausible from the beginning. I think Scott Faith used the example of, of this was the Chucky Smollett of the Gaza-Israel war. Okay, Charles, hold that thought because I want to come back to that after the break because even as a civilian, there's some things that jumped out at me in Scott Faith's article about this, and, and I think everybody needs to hear it. So uh, if you don't mind, hold that thought, ladies and gentlemen. Here's your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Charles Fink, the owner of the Havoc Journal. You can learn more at HavocJournal.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Charles Fink, the owner of the Havoc Journal. You can learn more at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K. Charles, when we took the break, we were talking about Scott Faith's article, Hamas, the Invisible Gorilla, and what the media political complex is doing to America. And we're talking in particular about this alleged bombing of the hospital in Gaza. And even as a civilian, when I saw the number, because I think it started off at, what, 300, then 400, then 500. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. A, it was too soon after the alleged attack to be able to start counting corpses. I right. mean, basic stuff like that. It's like, wait a minute, this 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 doesn't pass the smell test. It absolutely didn't make any sense for anyone with a lick of sense. But so many people reacted to it. There is violence all over the world, and so many people who actively want to work against Israel, and the United States, and, and other interests, or just want that sensational is more than happy to amplify it. It was disgusting. Well, and we talked about how quickly information spreads, and also that applies to misinformation. I mean, people saw this as an opportunity to promote their particular opinion or, or position on something, jumped on it right away and started communicating it. And that has very real-world consequences. I mean, a meeting with President Biden that hopefully right. would have moved us towards peace was canceled because of this right. falsehood. You think about the protests and now how people are getting into kerfuffles on the streets of our country over stuff that's not accurate. It, it's very... It's frustrating and it's very frightening, Charles. Yeah, they're fighting on that lie, Ben, just like we talked about. And it is frightening and it is irksome. 
the the internet gives us access to so much information, but we still pick and choose what we want to believe, and that's not healthy for our country. Well, I tell you, the quote I pulled out of Scott's article was, we are far too comfortable focusing on what journalists tell us is important instead of sussing that out for ourselves. And I, I'm not lived by that credo every day anymore, but I, oh gosh, I sure wish I didn't have to. That directly relates to how we started off the article, which is that thought experiment about the invisible gorilla, which I thought was amazing, and I've used many times with cadets in my classroom to to see what they notice when they're told to be focused on something else. Well, I, I took that little test. If folks go to the, to the article at Have a Journal, there's they can go to the YouTube video there where they can take the test. And I I guess I cheated because I knew what I was supposed to be looking for. But <laughs> when I see it, it's pretty it's amazing that people might have missed literally the the gorilla in the room. Now, this has some, some personal context for you, Charles. Every year, you make a trip to that part of the world as part of the, the Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative. And just yeah. this last May, you were in some of the places that were targeted. Yeah, we were in a number of places down the south near, along the Gaza border. We can't go into Gaza for for many reasons. The PDLI initiative between Yale and West, we have a lot of restrictions on where we can go and what we can do because we're the Department of Defense. But we can go down to that area, so crossing all these places that got hit so hard. We were there in May, and it really affected me, Ben, in a way that other conflicts have it, because it was real to, to me in a way that other conflicts weren't. So even in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were part of my job involved looking at terrorist videos where they're actively carrying out the same types of atrocities we saw Hamas carry out against Israel. I didn't know those people. I hadn't been to those places. But when I watched the videos that Hamas took, I've been there. Thank goodness I, I never saw anyone that I knew on tape being murdered, but I know those communities. And that was tough for us to do. What was really tough for me, Ben, as, as someone who prides himself as a protector and as a member of the military, even if I'd have been there when this happened, there wouldn't have been a thing I could have done about it. And that, that was very sobering. One thing I found surprising, uh, Charles, is that I just assumed that Everybody in Israel carried weapons, but no. now it's they, they you cannot possess a private firearm in Israel. It's actually very hard that, to legally own firearms in Israel, and it's a common misperception, one that I shared. I, I first went to Israel in 1998, and going down the Wailing Wall, we see the the conservative Jews praying, and they lean forward aggressively when when they're praying at the Western Wall. And you'd often see on the hip or under the shoulder, you'd see a, a pistol or even a submachine gun. And, of course, when you're walking the streets in Israel, you'll often see people often dressed in civilian clothes or rifles thrown, thrown across the chest. But what most people don't realize is those people are in the military and they're required to do it. Most Israelis don't carry guns and aren't allowed to carry guns without a permit. And a lot of the Israelis that I talk to, yeah, they, they have a pistol, but they have to keep it locked up in a safe and the ammunition is controlled as well. So it's harder for people to privately own weapons in Israel than folks expect. And even if you had a gun and you had access to it, it's hard to fight someone with AK-47 or a PKM or an RPG when you've got a Glock. Mm -hmm. So it was hard. So people did the best they could with what they had until the Army showed up. But by then, there were already bodies. Charles, irony is not the right word because I'm looking for something much more sad. I, I mean, the fact that you're involved in something called the Peace and Dialogue Leadership Initiative, and then to see peace shattered so abruptly, that's got to weigh pretty heavy on, on your shoulders or your mind. It absolutely does. And we had a, a board meeting not too long ago, and the students at Yale West Point do the planning. We have a board, and we give them input 
And one of my colleagues here, Ruth, at West Point and I, uh, we go every year as faculty advisors, but the students lead the mission. And we had to talk about whether or not we were going to do it this year because the fighting could go on for a long time. But very quickly, we came to the determination that now more than ever, they need young people looking at peace and having dialogue, exercising some leadership to try to overcome these types of things that we're seeing both on campus and overseas. So we're going to keep going along the mission. But, yeah, it just got a whole lot harder. Speaking of Scott Faith, back almost exactly a year ago, he published an article set that it was titled, What if Putin's partial mobilization just isn't? Just a couple minutes left. We can come back to this after the break. But how has that weathered as far as what's going on in Ukraine? Well, that was a very interesting piece. And, and Scott wrote it back when it looked like Putin was going to come in heavy with all he had in, into Ukraine. And I think in some parts, the points in the article were borne out, and other parts they weren't. So we've seen a lot of back and forth in Ukraine. And for me, as someone who spent a lot of time in military intelligence studying Russia, I remain flabbergasted that Russia isn't doing better against Ukraine. Now, we're going to have a lot of help, and Ukraine is fighting hard. But they really should have steamrolled that entire country. And even with the additional troops that Scott was predicting that were going to come in, Putin hasn't been able to do a whole lot with them. And that kind of makes me happy. Yeah, that makes two of us. I tell you, it makes me think, though, of some of, again, I encourage you, if you haven't read Paul Shari's book, Four Battlegrounds, I, I suggest you, you do that. Because I see what's happening in Ukraine now is perhaps one of the first digital age combat scenarios. where, And I think this is something that Scott put in his article. It's like Russia's problem is not with, with warm bodies. Russia's problem is right. with logistics and with intelligence. And some of these other factors out there that apparently the Ukrainians, with help, are employing more effectively. Absolutely right. So people tend to look at armies and look at how much equipment they have and how many people they have. And those are important because sometimes quantity has a quality all its own. But at the end of the day, if you don't know how to fight modern warfare, which is way more difficult than most people realize, you're going to get your butt beat pretty bad. And even though the type of wars that are happening in Israel between Israel Hamas and Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia are very different than the wars we fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. There are a lot of universal truths that are going to hold true. And one thing that the Americans are very, very good at is logistics and intelligence and, of course, materiel and everything else. And that's going to be decisive in Ukraine and also going to be decisive in whatever happens between Israel and Hamas. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Charles Faint of the Havoc Journal, HavocJournal.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're broadcasting for the Silencer Central Studios. At Silencer Central, they make silence simple. Their experts make the buying process simple. They can help you select the right suppressor, handle the paperwork, and get it right to your front door. Visit silencercentral.com to find out if buying and owning a silencer is legal in your state. We're back with Charles Fate, who is the owner of the Havoc Journal, also the executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, 27 years in the Army, seven combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, with various special operations units. Speaking of special operators, I want to chat a little bit about that. There was a an article. One thing I like about Havoc Journal, it's it's you know, like Scott Face's recent article really challenged me 
even though I didn't disagree with it, but it was it was pretty pretty sporty. But there's also a lot of pieces there, Charles, that I find are, are educational and apply even in the civilian world. And many of those are by military members who are writing about how some of their their ethos and some of the things they were taught translates to the private sector. And you know, that's what I took from Michael Caine's article, Know Your Role, Seven Rules for Supporting Special Operations. That was absolutely a great piece. And Michael's experiences in the military are very similar to mine. So I spent a lot of time in special operations on the support side. I was never an operator. Michael Caine was the same. He's writing about supporting special operations. In fact, I could have written this article. I didn't. I didn't have anything to do with it. But I thought that his article that he wrote several years ago, and we were a post every year, I thought it was a pretty good one. And you're right. It could definitely apply to, to anyone. Basically, know your role, do your job, and don't try to do somebody else. You know, so often in these cases of stolen valor, you'll find that it's not that someone never served in the military, but they were they were served as a cook, which which should have been good enough. I mean, you know, an army travels on its stomach, but they would try and and burnish it and make up stuff and you know next thing you know they're a, they're a navy seal or they're a delta operator and it makes me kind of sad you know as someone who never served any service is is worth you know recognizing and important so uh one of the things he talked about is you know know your place and be proud of it not everybody's an operator but you're still valuable to the mission and and you know that heart and soul because really that's was was your role working with the operators that went out to actually conduct the missions, but you're there to support them. And it wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone so well without your support, you and your team support, I'm guessing. Absolutely, absolutely. And we just got done talking about how important intelligence logistics are to winning modern wars. And then we have people that are doing those roles and, and are embarrassed by it. They shouldn't be. I'm not. I'm quite happy with my role in support and being fat and happy on the FOB and supporting the, the operators where they go out and, and put more heads to foreheads or whatever is going to take place. And that was a constant frustration for me when I was in the Fifth Special Forces group. I commanded the group in my detachment in the early 2000s. And too many of my soldiers wanted to be Special Forces but weren't. And I had had to struggle with them and say, that's not your job. Well, our job is to support them. If you want to be them, then quit this MOS and go to Special Forces Assessment and Selection. Otherwise, go in the language lab and learn learn Farsi or whatever your job is. You need to do that, focus on that, and that's how you're going to gain the respect. You're not going to gain the respect of an operator by trying to be an operator if you're not an operator. Don't try to do it. Do your job, be good at it, be happy with it. Yeah, that, that kind of blends into the other thing that came out of this, uh, talking about you know mentorship. Find someone senior and make them their your mentor, whether you know it or not. Early on in my lobbying career, I just had a, a just an outstanding mentor who and I'll never forget, I was kind of chafing at the bit on one particular subject when I was working for a nonprofit. He says, look, if you want to set the policy, then quit your job, run for the board of directors, and then you can set policy. But our job is to implement the policy and provide the information to the board so they can make the right decision, and then we go out and implement it. And that always stuck with me. And I think that's something, particularly for young people here nowadays in this very confusing world, there are senior people in every organization and in most cases, they're more than willing to help. And I, I would guess that that applies even to the, you know, the salty sergeant. For sure. And I think it's also incumbent on us as leaders to mentor people. And the trap that I find myself falling into a lot is only wanting to mentor high-performing people and, and likable people. And frankly, they're the ones that need it the least. 
we need to get in there and mentor everybody because you never know who's going to rise up to be a leader. The person who's struggling now might be the best leader in the world, especially if you give them a little love and attention and, and water that fertile ground and help them to grow. But there are so many people in a unit and so few leaders that I think Michael's right in this instance that the subordinates need to be aggressive about going out and finding a mentor. It doesn't have to be your immediate boss. It doesn't have to be somebody in your chain of command. I learned a lot from people who I outranked over over the years that were in different units. So mentors are out there. They take all different forms. We just need to go out there and get them if we're subordinate, and we need to make ourselves available if we're the leader. I tell you one lesson that was very hard for me to learn. Well, not very hard. I learned it pretty quick when it happened, but it's certainly appropriate in the context of what we were talking about in the last break about um, some of the media nowadays. Uh, bad, he says, bad news doesn't get better with time. Own your mistakes. Right. And I think a lot of folks out there right now in leadership positions could uh, maybe take that advice. <laughs> well, that, that of course, is one of the frustrations we have in the military. Of course, I'm retired now. But we have a very self-accountable culture inside the military. And to see people outside the military who are making decisions that affect us bear no consequence for, for their decisions, that was hard. That was hard for a lot of us, and it remains hard. How important as a, as a leader... Charles, how important do you feel it was to allow your subordinates to fail? I, I think it's super important. I think we give them the the room they need to succeed, but we also give them the ability to fail, especially in circumstances where the consequences aren't life or death. And I remember an instance from, from my own, my very first assignment, the 101st Airborne Division, Sergeant First Class Ellery Edwards, my platoon sergeant, best in the in the Army. We went down to the Joint Readiness Training Center, and I was briefed in a plan that that he was going to let me execute because I didn't ask for any input. I just said, okay, this is what we're going to do. He was going to let me implement it because it was reasonable, but it was going to fail. And the only reason that it didn't fail was because we didn't carry it out because one of the other more junior NCOs came to me and was like, I, I don't want to do that because it's dumb and we should do this thing over here. And that was a great lesson to me. Let me have that initial failure in a circumstance where it wasn't going to be catastrophic. Only us knew about it. I learned a lot from that. So I never unilaterally made decisions again after that. It, it was a great lesson. And that speaks to another one of Michael Caine's points in his article. Your rank doesn't make the idea any better necessarily. No, it absolutely does not. There have been plenty of circumstances in my career where I've, I've deliberately solicited input from subordinates. And we say all the time in the Army's Principles of Michigan, man, if you give your subordinates the the right tools for the job, you trust them, you train them, you empower them, they'll surprise you with their creativity and problem solving. And I've been pleasantly surprised a number of times. I've been unpleasantly surprised a number of times, too, but you got to learn to underwrite that risk, especially when you're in a garrison environment or sometimes even in combat where the consequences aren't, aren't severe. And lastly, we've got just about a minute and a half left, Charles, for the next break. But uh, what really struck me is, you know, always put mission first. And the rest will fall yeah. into place. And I think that applies to our personal lives, whether you're military or not, or your business life, uh, whatever it might be. And, you know, so often that, and I think that's why a lot of my clients will hire members of the military and veterans all the time, because they do have that mission mindset and that, uh, that you know, one fight, one team mindset. And I think that's, that's something that's often overlooked. Again, nowadays where people, it's... Uh, I want to pay attention to what's going to get me up the next rung on the ladder, what's going to improve my resume, but that may not necessarily jive with the overall mission of the organization. For sure. And one of the things that, that I even 
teach my children is that as far as I'm concerned, self-interest is a legitimate motivator. It's okay to have some, some limited self-interest, but you've got to put the team and the mission first. Mission first, people always, and then yourself in there as well. So I think the example that that Michael Caine used was Admiral McRaven, who was, was also one of my bosses in JSOC, along with McChrystal. And those two guys did a great job of showing how to put the mission and the team first, and I think that was a great example for all of us. Well, I tell you what, Charles, when we come back, I like to stick on this because there's one thing that really is, is uh, again, as a dumb civilian, is just making my, my head spin. I want to touch on that. And then I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about uh, first responders and uh Amy Cafal, who we had on the show uh, before, has got just an outstanding book out called The Resolute Path that he published with the help of the Second Mission Foundation, and a, a very insightful article he wrote called A Life of Duality. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Villar-Garcia. We're talking with Charles Bate. He is the owner of the Havoc Journal. You can find out more at HavocJournal.com. Also, check out the SecondMissionFoundation.org. We'll be right back. Welcome back to AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Charles Fain, our regular check-in with Charles. He's the owner of the Havoc Journal. Uh, you can learn more at HavocJournal.com. It's definitely a site that I visit on a regular basis to, uh, very important for a civilian, to get educated about what's on the minds of the members of our military and veteran community and, and first responders. Real quick, Charles, before we switch gears, I, even as an uneducated civilian, I've been around enough folks, and, and obviously you spent most of your career working with, with operators of special forces, you know, buddy check me here. If I take a photo with a bunch of secret squirrels, Delta, Navy SEALs, whatever, I don't post that on the interwebs, right? Well, as a general that's absolutely true. And there's different flavors of soft. It's, it's not an official designation, but you have white soft. And you have black soft. The white soft might be the special forces, might be civil affairs and things like that. Black soft, more still team six and delta. There are circumstances where some, the identities of some of those individuals need to be protected. So even when I was in JSOC, for example, it wasn't a secret that I was in JSOC. I, I was in that unit doing the things that I was doing, but I was doing it under my real name. Some other unit, they need to be protected in a way that the incident that I know you're referring to right now that occurred with, with some operators simply didn't. It didn't happen. That was bad, and it could cause problems for those folks down the line. And I, I want to be very clear here. This was not the president's fault. I mean, he goes where he's told to go, and he shakes the hand and smiles. Um, but, I mean, certainly someone on the staff needs to get some more education because, I mean, what happens in this case? Could it be as bad as they've got to pull those operators out and replace them with a new team? It could be, but I doubt that's the case. I have no idea who those people are or what they're doing. I know just as much as anybody else reading the report. It could be that that's an advanced team. It could be that those individuals aren't working deep cover under a pseudonym. It could be any number of things. So I also like to think that if it was a case where someone taking a picture of them would jeopardize the entire mission, that someone on that team would have stopped the picture from getting taken at all. So definitely bad form, definitely something we need to work out in the future. But to answer your question, Ben, I don't know the impact of it. I would be deeply annoyed if I was still operational in the special operations type of thing was going on. But sometimes the picture is just a picture. So I guess we'll see what the fallout's going to be. Well, here's my story, Charles. I think that they were Peace Corps members who just happened to be wearing a kit. 
<laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. More, more misinformation for you there. The biggest, most jacked Peace Corps people in the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was switching gears here back to Damon Cafell, who's uh, actually one of my, besides you, Charles, one of my favorite guests I've had on just a tremendous backstory of this young man who his whole life has been filled with conflict. He now currently serves as a first responder, and he wrote a book called The Life of Duality. And he starts, we don't start off, but I want to start off with a quote that he cites in the article by Nietzsche. Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. You are a first responder or a member of the military. You're going to see and potentially engage in some pretty traumatic things. And you can't just, you, know, you get home at night after a shift as a police officer and you, 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 know, you drop your uniform, you drop your belt. You, you can't shed that trauma as easily. Absolutely right. And I'm in, first of all, I never get tired of talking about him. And I'm glad you, you bring him up. Seems like every interview I do, I've talked about Iman. And this most recent thing that you wrote for Habit Journal called A Life Duality, like you mentioned, he talks about that. And, and the Nietzsche quote is right on. Because I think whether, no matter what we do, if we're fighting evil, and a lot of this is straight evil, I'm not afraid to say it, then we got to make sure we don't become that as well. And there are plenty of things that we can do to bad guys that handle whatever we need to do to them, but we got to make sure that we don't become that which we're seeking to fight. And I'm thinking about my own experiences in Iraq and the things that other units outside of the special operations community were doing to prisoners of a war. We got away from our values on that, and the, the reaction to that was a huge propaganda loss for us, gain for our enemies, and a whole bunch of rules that we, we might not have needed put on top of it because people were acting stupid and not in course with our values. So I'm in just hit another home run with this article. Aaron, one should read it for sure. Well, and I just hearing you talk, Charles, I'm wondering if, if this is some careful line that the Israelis are walking right now and that um, I don't personally, I don't, I don't think they're, I mean, this is war, you know, and yeah. at World War II, we expected and demanded and achieved a full unconditional surrender by the, both the Germans and, and the Japanese. And I suspect that that is maybe the, the end goal of the Israelis right now. But I think they also, just given the horror of what happened, I think they have to be very careful not to, to become those monsters as well, uh, particularly if they go into a ground uh, conflict. For sure. And the world's going to accuse them of doing it anyway. I think people don't understand that civilian deaths in military operations, while regrettable, are not necessarily war crimes. So just because the civilian dies, which is a tragedy, doesn't make it a war crime. I also I think I know that there's a whole body of thought in international relations that basically give war a chance. And some people might tell you that one of the reasons that this war keeps going on and thousands of people keep dying on the regular is because do-gooders with good intentions but bad ideas keep intervening for one side or the other wins. So we have situations where the Israelis and the, the Palestinians fight it out every couple of years, and then we all rush in to stop the fighting before one side or the other sees itself defeated. Then we give everybody billions of dollars to rebuild and set the clock, and it's going to happen again in five, ten, two years. The thing I like about Amon's writing is um, it's serious, but he also throws little gems in there. And he, one of the examples he used about where apparently he was involved in an undercover operation Literally, just as he's about to enter his house at the end of his shift, uh, he gets a call from one of his uh, one of his sources. So he has to convert to that um, that character that he is as an undercover operator. So he walks in the house using this language that was 
perfectly appropriate maybe for the streets, but not appropriate for the wife and kids. Um, and I guess he uh, he learned his lesson. Uh, I, I can't remember if his wife just told him, you, you keep that outside, brother. But uh, definitely kind of. I know I've been on your show. Have you ever met his wife? I have not, no. She's a, she's a lovely person. So I, I met her the same night I met I met up in Boston, and I, I imagine I'm going to see her again when we do his book lunch. But, yeah, she's a wonderful person. She's a, she's a character in her own right, and, and I'm in as a tough guy. I know you had him on a show. I know you I know, you know his background. But uh, his his wife uh, does a good job of, of keeping him on the straight and narrow, and, and just like my wife does for me and, and numerous other spouses do for, for their husband. So, yeah, I, I laughed out loud when I read that because I'm just imagining how that went in my head based on my interactions with him and his wife. Well, you didn't pull a gun on Santa Claus, but, you know, <laughs> different story, folks. You have to go back to the archives to check that out. Listen, we've got just a couple minutes left. I just I, I want to share one last thing. I know I've talked to a lot of uh, first responder spouses who have told me that they actually had to develop a a system, a code of dealing with their spouses who happen to be law enforcement about just you know, when they come home sometimes at night, you you know, and I don't know if there's a code word or just a look in their face where you know, okay, it's time to just let them be. And, uh, you know, we might be eating dinner apart tonight. So uh, that makes me a little bit sad, but I'm always grateful for the people who are willing to do that so the rest of us can be safe with our families. What uh, What's going on with the Second Mission Foundation, Charles? Anything to announce here or any updates? Yeah, we got, a, we got another book. That we're in the process of producing right now. It's called Surviving Vietnam. It's by Diana Nichol and her and her husband, who is now passed, but survived Vietnam. It's their story. You mentioned Iman's book, The Resolute Path. By the time this this episode comes out, we'll have done its book launch. You know, we're, we're just looking to help vets. So anyone who wants to can check out secondmissionfoundation.org, and we do micro grants for businesses. We help people tell their stories. It's been a lot of fun. And now that I'm retired from the army, I'm looking forward to doing more of it, man. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. So, if literally, if I have an idea for, to to write a book, I just do I need to send you a, an outline, or I just say, Charles, I've got a great idea. What do you guys think? And and then how do you how what do you do to besides the publishing part of it, which is an important part, but how do you help them get through the process? Great question, Ben. So we we like stories that are by people from the veteran community, and as you know, we very inclusive in the better community. It's, it's why it's, it's a wide net. And what we do when we put people on contract is the first thing we do is we give them uh, $500. So I write, I write them a check that we, we call an advance on earnings, but it's basically just a grant. Here's, here's your grant. We put them on contract. We split the proceeds 50, 50. We help them promote it. We help them write it. We pay for all the editing. It doesn't cost them a penny. And then at the end of it, they have a book. In addition to I'm we have two other books on the street armor of God in the hill. And it's been a great process uh, to, to help veterans get their stories out there. So the short end of it is you can find the email on the site. If you got a, we want a complete manuscript. I'm not going to put someone on contract on spec. You got to send us a complete manuscript. We'll look at it. If we can work with it, then we'll get back in touch and we'll help you get it on the street. Outstanding. And folks, you can learn more. Visit secondmissionfoundation.org. Also visit havocjournal.com. Charles, always a pleasure to chat with you, sir. Thanks, Ben. Looking forward to it. Thanks for what you do for our better community. I really appreciate it, brother, and, and good luck to you. Thank you. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, our policies and procedures will remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.